I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. Forty years ago, in June of 1967, the Sinai Desert between Egypt and Israel would become a graveyard for an army. It would also become the final resting place for shattered dreams. In Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the charismatic leader of the Arabs, envisioned a new Arab world, a great pan-Arab nation, strong, secular, socialist. Led by Nasser, it would stretch across the Middle East. But to him, there was one major obstacle that stood in his way, Israel. In six short days of war, Nasser will lose not only his dream, but his army, his air force, and much of his prestige. Three years later, he will die of a heart attack. His friends will say he died of a broken heart. Israel as the architects of war entered ancient Jerusalem. Missing from this glorious moment is an important character, Levi Eshkol, Prime Minister of Israel. Eshkol was the opposite of Nasser, a manager, a man without charisma, someone devoted to the nuts and bolts of developing Israel's economy, a man who yearned above all for a nation living in peace. But Eshkol, like Nasser, failed. Failed to hold back those who wanted war. Failed to lead his own generals. Failed to find peace. Eshkol will barely survive the war. When he dies 18 months later, his wife will say that he too died of a broken heart. 
The Six-Day War of 1967 is a brilliant military success for Israel, but it has a troubled legacy. It mires the country in years of occupation and violence and leaves an Arab world so traumatized that more and more will turn to militant Islam. The Six-Day War will prove to be an unfinished war, just one battle in a conflict that has never ended. It is in Syria, Israel's neighbor to the north, where the countdown to the Six-Day War begins. Syria is at the center of a militant Arab nationalism, which is strongly anti-Israeli. The then head of the Syrian state, General Amin al-Hafiz, accusing Arab leaders of cowardice because they didn't want to attack Israel. And he said that uh, given uh, the command of all Arab forces in the countries surrounding Israel, he would be able to wipe out Israel in six hours. Syria harbors and trains Palestinian commandos who aim to destroy the Jewish state. Both countries settle disputes over land and water with artillery. In April of 1967, tensions between Israel and Syria reach a new high. Fighter jets clash in the skies over Damascus, and Israeli pilots down six of Syria's Soviet-made MiGs. Israeli Prime Minister Eshkol issues a warning. I hope that our northern neighbors will think twice before they entangle themselves in a nasty adventure, which we will not be able to ignore. The Kremlin takes Eshkol's statement as a threat, and they take it seriously. Syria is a Soviet outpost in the Middle East, a valuable piece in the chess game of the Cold War. The Soviet official in charge of the Middle East, Viktor Semyonov, notes, Israel stages provocations on the border with Syria. Vietnam and the U.S. 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean loom behind all this. I should tell you honestly that we had detailed, factual information from the KGB and military intelligence about Israeli forces concentrating on the border with Syria. Our friends, Egypt and Syria, were the first to be informed about it. Egypt is also in the Soviet camp. In the spring of 1967, Anwar Sadat, the Speaker of Egypt's Parliament, heads a delegation to the Soviet Union. Just before Sadat returns home, Semyonov delivers some startling news. 
In one week's time, he says, Israel is poised to attack Syria with 12 brigades. Semenov's information will prove to be wrong, but it sets in motion a disaster. Back in Cairo on the 14th of May, Sadat speeds the news to Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. He finds Nasser with Field Marshal Amer, the head of the armed forces. They are already poring over maps. The Soviet ambassador has given them the same warning about Israel. Egypt and Syria have a mutual defense pact. If Israel is threatening Syria, then Egypt must react. But 60,000 Egyptian soldiers are off fighting for a socialist revolution in Yemen. Without them, Nasser doubts the readiness of his army to fight an all-out war with Israel. Nasser asked if our military forces were ready to face Israel. Amr said, yes, and be assured, Mr. President, that we are ready to meet our enemies and we are going to attack them inside Israel, on all levels, in the air, and on the ground. Nasser and Amir immediately order four Egyptian divisions to the Sinai border with Israel, and they call up reserves. The Egyptian reserves mostly come from Nasser's power base, the hundreds of villages of the Nile Delta. We didn't know anyone else but Nasser. Because the farmer was very poor, Nasser gave him land. Nasser was supporting poor people. All of us loved Nasser. The mobilization orders go out to thousands of peasants. Four divisions cross into the Sinai in the first 48 hours. 40,000 soldiers with 300 state-of-the-art Soviet-made tanks, 450 armored personnel carriers, and several types of heavy Soviet artillery, all on the move to the Israeli border. The surprising thing about the buildup was how public it had been. The sending of the troops into Sinai was done like a parade ground maneuver. The units that people had never heard of before suddenly appeared on the street. The send-off of the troops is broadcast on radio and TV all over the Middle East. There is both widespread excitement and support for Nasser's move. We were telling people there was a military buildup on the Syrian front, that Israel intended to attack Syria, that we couldn't be spectators, that we had to be ready if Syria was attacked, to enter the war and to attack Israel, to reduce the pressure on Syria. Twelve hours into mobilizing his troops, Nasser finds out the Soviet intelligence warning about Israel's attack is wrong. At this moment, Nasser can back off from war. But he doesn't dare dampen the excitement he's created throughout the Arab world.
On the same day that the Egyptians enter the Sinai, Israel, a country of only two and a half million people, is celebrating the 19th anniversary of its founding. And although the public is unaware of it, Israeli intelligence has just learned of the massive Egyptian buildup in the Sinai. Minister Eshkol, who is also defense minister, reviews his troops and gets an update on the Egyptian buildup. I'm sitting near Levi Eshkol on the dais in the stadium. The parade begins to move, and an officer comes and whispers in Eshkol's ear. Eshkol raises an eyebrow, looking worried. With Eshkol is General Itzhak Rabin, the Army Chief of Staff. This is his first big test. With only a small standing army, he argues for calling up some reserves. Eshkol authorizes Rabin to mobilize only one tank brigade, just 3,000 men. He fears a bigger mobilization could be perceived as a provocation. The first Israeli reservists are called up that night. Among them is a 27-year-old office worker, Yehoshua Bardayan. He starts a diary. Eleven p.m. at night, a telephone rings. I have to leave in ten minutes and help mobilize my unit. Gila is shaking. I am nervous too. As he distributes draft notices, the radio is playing the new hit song, Jerusalem of Gold, about a yearning for the ancient capital of Judaism. It takes all night to mobilize everybody. You climb stairways knock on doors. There are frightened faces. Husbands enter the children's room to kiss the kids, trying to calm everyone, to reassure them. At 6 a.m. I'm back at home. I kiss Gila and Yariv goodbye. They wave to me from the balcony. The next morning, the first Israeli reserve units speed south towards the Israeli-Sinai border. The Israeli and Egyptian forces are now separated by a narrow buffer zone, manned by UN peacekeepers. A few thousand troops from India, Canada, Brazil, and Scandinavia are all that separate the enemies. The UN mans observation posts and patrols the border from the Mediterranean to the Straits of Tehran, maintaining peace for more than 10 years. But two days after moving his troops into the Sinai, Nasser makes another bold move. 
On May 16th, UN Force Commander General Indarjit Rikye receives a distressing message. This is the first time in my life that I was really, really absolutely staggered. Why? Because of the enormity of what was going to happen. Nasser's chief of staff, General Sharkawi, orders the UN commander to evacuate the UN force within 48 hours. My reaction was very cool. And so I said, uh, I will send this to the Secretary General and uh, ask for his instructions. Then Shakavi said, but sir, what do you think about it? So I thought very rapidly and I said, have you, have you thought through what the consequences of this problem are going to be? Have you, have you worked it out, how you're going to deal with Israel? After you move your troops on the frontier and UNF moves away, what response the Israelis are going to have? Oh, sir, I will meet you for lunch in Tel Aviv next. UN Secretary General Utant receives Egypt's request. Without consulting the Security Council, he acquiesces to Nasser's demand for the removal of the UN force. The first UN peacekeeping mission ever to be deployed is being terminated, just when it seems to be most needed. Without the UN, Egypt and Israel are left to their own devices. A lot of my colleagues, when we were debating this question, uh, said to me that, well, the, the Arabs are going to attack first. I said, no. The Israelis will attack first. What basis? I said, the Arabs will provide them with the basis. Embassy in Tel Aviv, John Haddon, the CIA station chief in Israel, reports to his superiors in Langley, Virginia, Nasser is raising the stakes. For me, it was just like a little boy who's being held by his father, and the little boy is shouting, let me at him, let me at him, and he doesn't want to be let at him at all, but all of a sudden the father lets go of him. And then, and then they were off and running, weren't they? Nasser was being held by his shirt tails by having this UN front. And when he demanded that it disappear, it disappeared, and no one was more surprised than he, I, I think. With the UN gone, Eshkol hopes the superpowers will keep the situation in check. In a world divided by the Cold War, the US is Israel's major supporter. President Lyndon Johnson advises Eshkol to refrain from taking any step that might increase tension. But while the U.S. is holding Israel back, the Soviets appear to give Egypt a freer reign, which they will soon exploit. 
The departure of the UN forces puts Egypt in control of the Straits of Tehran, the strategically important narrows of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's a potential flashpoint. Job of keeping the straits open and so giving Israeli shipping access to this Gulf was taken on by the United Nations Emergency Force. Now, of course, that force is gone. So on the question of war or peace, the Israelis say here in the Gulf of Aqaba, the choice is better than Nasser's. In Cairo, Nasser and Field Marshal Amer face a strategic decision. Closing the straits could ignite a war. But allowing Israeli shipping through the straits could be seen in the rest of the Arab world as a sign of Egyptian weakness. Amer argues that Egyptian soldiers simply could not stand idle and watch Israeli ships pass. He convinces Nasser that the army can face any Israeli retaliation. Amer said we should take a firm stand. He told Nasser, my forces are ready 100%. They are strong enough to defend us and to push the Israelis back to their borders. Nasser and Field Marshal Amer have a complicated relationship. They rose to power together 15 years earlier when they led a military coup that overthrew the king. Nasser assumed the top political job, and Amer was put in charge of military matters. And he is ready for war. No one from the military leadership objected. It was the opposite. They all believed they were strong. General Mortagi, commander of the ground forces, said, we are the strongest power in the Middle East. The commander of the Air Force said, we have the strongest Air Force in the Middle East. May 22nd, Amer and Nasser visit their troops in the Sinai. It is now a formidable force of 100,000 men. They have a secret plan to strike at Israel in five days. But they have a more immediate tactic. They announce they are closing the Straits of Tehran to Israel. It is virtually a declaration of war. <laughs> Nasser says, if the Jews want war, we say welcome. We are ready. A few days ago you said that if Israel attacks, she will be completely destroyed. Yeah. And some Arab leaders actually say that their aim is the elimination of Israel without any qualification. Now what well, does this mean, if, actually? If somebody attacks you, yeah. what would be your reaction? Somebody attacks us, we will react. React in war means destruction. And if they don't attack, will you let them alone? Yes, we leave them alone. We have no intention to attack Israel. That night, Prime Minister Eshkol's military advisor, Colonel Lior, is awakened with the news of the closing of the Straits of Tehran. He rushes to the Ministry of Defense and is asked to report to its underground bunker, the Army War Room. 
I thought war was going to break out the same day. We cannot give the Egyptian army more time to organize. I woke up Eshkol on the direct line. Sir, the Egyptians closed the straits. At 8 a.m., Eshkol meets with several generals in the war room, including Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin and the Head of Intelligence, Aharon Yariv. If Israel does not respond to the closing of the straits, it will lose its power of deterrence. Israel's credibility, determination, and capacity to exercise its right to self-defense are being tested. Israel must respond. Eshkol listens to the generals carefully, but he tells them that President Johnson has advised Israel not to shoot first. As always, Eshkol is cautious. He decides to sound out international opinion, and he postpones the decision to go to war for 48 hours. closing of the Straits of Tehran electrifies the Arab world, and Radio Cairo beats the drums of war. The masses were very excited, sure that their army could win. Feelings were very high among all Egyptians, including us in the media. It was obvious that Gamal Abdel Nasser had a very advanced Arab vision. From the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean, Nasser was the man we were all waiting for. It is true, some people say that Nasser was all talk. But actually, the Arab world was ready to follow him. The Arab world was ready to sacrifice for a successful project. Nowhere in the Arab world is Nasser more admired than in East Jerusalem. Here, the Palestinians, many of them refugees from the 48 war, look to him for salvation. The people were looking towards Abdel Nasser. If you took a popularity poll, there were probably more Palestinians supported Nasser than Egyptians. You know, I mean, he was an incredible hero. I remember seeing his face on prayer rugs. I was shocked by that. What are you doing with the face of Abdel Nasser on a prayer rug? I mean. He was such an extraordinary hero, as if he could do no wrong. Nasser's preparation for war makes it possible for hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees, displaced 20 years earlier, to dream of returning to their villages and farms that are now part of Israel. Here in this part of the world, in the Arab country, no one, no one accept uh, this idea about forgetting all the past, all the uh, 20 years, and close our eyes and uh, leave everything as it is. 
Nasser has dramatically revised his agenda. The looming conflict is no longer about deterring Israel from attacking Syria or controlling the Straits of Tehran. Now he talks about turning the clock back 20 years to before the State of Israel was created. Radio Cairo delivers this message to Israelis in their own language. And because there is no Israeli television in 1967, Israelis watch Egyptian television in Arabic. You turn on the TV and you watch Egyptian television, and you see the celebration in the streets. You see Nasser sitting down in the airbase in Sinai with the MiG-21 pilots in their G-suits ready for combat, smiling from ear to ear. You see the massive amount of tanks entering Sinai. We had the feeling that we were being suffocated, that they were going to destroy us all. The Arab press is contributing to the frenzy with its anti-Semitic caricatures of Jews. Israel is shown crushed, pierced, and destroyed in the coming war. Israelis prepare for the worst. Rabbis consecrate parks to serve as mass graveyards. Civilians are called to donate blood and dig trenches. Most of the able-bodied men are called into service. Most factories and stores are closed. Every truck, every bus, every human being was gone. The economy was at an absolute dead standstill, waiting, you see. And so it was clear that this couldn't last. I was very afraid to leave home. We were just waiting for a plane to come bomb us. I remember that in my heart I had decided that if we were conquered, I would turn on the gas and we would die together. I would not want my children to be hurt by them, and I would not want to fall into their hands either. The Arab propaganda has an impact beyond Israel. For Jews everywhere, it ignites a deep-seated fear that another Holocaust is in the making. Young Jewish volunteers pour into Israel. Going there because I feel, you know, the need to go there at this particular time. I feel that I identify strongly with Israel, and I feel that they need me perhaps now more than they will next year. We return to the days of the War of Independence, when the threat was really a threat of annihilation. And the public thought, here we are, not even 20 years later, and we are again facing a threat to our existence. So naturally, the Jews panicked.
In the moment of crisis, all eyes turned to Israel's founding father, David Ben-Gurion, the man who led the country through the dark days of the War of Independence in 48. Ben-Gurion thinks it is a mistake to go to war, and he fears the worst. When Chief of Staff Itzhak Rabin comes to seek his advice, Ben-Gurion reprimands him and triggers a major crisis. In his memoir, Rabin writes, The old man received me warmly, but instead of fortifying my spirits, he gave me a dressing down. He said, I doubt very much that Nasser wants to go to war, but now we are in a serious situation, totally isolated. When I left him, I was despondent. It would be days before his words stopped ringing in my ears. He said, You have led the state into a grave situation. You bear the responsibility. Yitzhak always respected Ben-Gurion. He was the old man, and Yitzhak was the young one. Ben-Gurion, I think, planted doubts in his mind. Yitzhak told me, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I took on too much responsibility. As commander of Israel's military, Rabin is under intense pressure. His mental anguish becomes obvious as he continues to prepare for war. I was with him. Suddenly, he didn't make any sense when he talked. He claimed that he heard lots of noise. Maybe it was a bombardment, he said. We didn't hear anything, no noise. Then we realized that he had collapsed and was having a breakdown. On the 23rd of May, he came home at 6 p.m. He wandered around in the corridors of the house smoking. He was smoking like a chimney throughout those days. Rubin's collapse was a disaster for Eshkol. I remember Eshkol saying, can you imagine if the public knew about the chief of staff of the army? What a depression it would cause. That same day, May 23rd, the UN Secretary-General Utant comes to Cairo to try to prevent war. A day of meetings with Utant and UN General Riquet failed to resolve the crisis. But later, in a private meeting with Nasser, they gain a troubling insight into his predicament. He was under tremendous political pressure. The military are insisting that he go to war. He definitely indicated that he was afraid of a coup. Assassination. Under pressure from his military to attack, Nasser turns to his superpower ally. He sends his defense minister to Moscow to seek Soviet support for an Egyptian first strike. 
When the defense minister finished speaking, Kosygin told him right away, I will report this request to the Politburo, but I must tell you, we cannot give our accord for a preemptive strike against Israel and for starting hostilities. The Soviets, who incited Nasser in the first place, apparently have had a change of heart. Despite Amer's insistence, Nasser decides to heed Kosygin and postpones plans for a first strike. At the same time that the Egyptians are in Moscow, Israel's foreign minister goes to Washington. Abba Iban wants the Americans to force Egypt to open the Straits of Tehran. Every nation in the world has a right of free and innocent passage in the Gulf of Aqaba to the Israeli port of uh, Eilat. Uh, if you ask me what I think they will do, I would say that is really what I've, I've come to find out about. In the White House, President Johnson gathers his advisors to discuss what he should say to Iban. Johnson doesn't want an Israeli first strike. I still remember his Texas vocabulary. Come sundown, I'm the one who will have to bell this cat, meaning Abba Ivan when he came to the White House to find out what the position of the United States would be. Uh, President Johnson asked us to bring uh, the foreign minister to the family quarters of the White House and, and to speak rather crudely about it, uh, the intent was to work him over, to persuade him, is perhaps a more polite term, to, uh, to avoid a preemptive attack. Abba Iban is ready to be persuaded but only if the U.S. dispatches a naval force to open the straits and make a formal commitment to help Israel if it is attacked. But Johnson is not ready to go that far. He expressed to me a sense of his own impotence that I had never heard either before or since from an American leader. He said that he was actually confined, contained and frustrated by the Vietnam War the Americans are only willing to say they will try to reopen the Straits. That could have been done. The United States only had to send one ship through, and uh, I believe that Nasser could have capitulated. President Johnson also box at a defense pact with Israel. He believes Israel is strong enough on her own. At the time, we had had three independent appraisals of the results of a Egyptian-Israeli war, all three showed that beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, Israel would win. Uh, I think we estimated that if Israel preempted, they'd win in seven to 10 days. If on the other hand, uh, they responded to an Egyptian attack, I believe we estimated they'd win in 14 days. But uh, Johnson went on, my generals are always right about other people's wars. And he then said in, in a kind of Delphic oratory, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to be alone. I would talk to my colleagues before I the public. Sir, are you optimistic? I'm realistic. Iban brings back the bad news. America is sympathetic, 
but unwilling to act with the urgency Eshkol needs. The crisis now stretches into a second week. The Israeli public wants it resolved, and increasingly they blame the prime minister for being ineffectual. You feel there is a growing disquiet in the public aimed at Eshkol and his leadership. His insistence on postponing a decision for one more day, one more day, and a demand begins to be formed. Give us a general, give us a general, give us a military leader. The papers ridicule Eshkol. Nasser crushes him while he sleeps. He is portrayed as hesitant and indecisive. Women were staging noisy demonstrations around the party offices, and we could hear this chanting, give us Diane, give us Diane. The public wants Eshkol to step down as defense minister and to appoint General Moshe Diane to the post. Diane is extremely popular. He's a military maverick and he's a hero. In 1956, during the Suez Crisis, he defeated the Egyptian army. Decisive and unapologetic, Diane believes war is the only alternative Israel has at this point. But still, Eshkol resists. On the 28th of May, in an effort to bolster his leadership, Eshkol plans to make his first public speech since the crisis began. Eshkol wants to reassure a tense nation, to tell them that he has a plan, that the government will fight if Israel is attacked, but that he will work together with the U.S. to avoid war. With no time to prepare, Eshkol's secretary insists the speech be delivered live. We brought him to the studio, and I did two rehearsals with him. He was great, coherent and fluent. And then it is time for the live broadcast. The speech goes well until Eshkol stumbles over a word. He turns to ask an aide about it and has to be reminded that he is live on air. He resumes, but now he is confused. He stutters. He seems hesitant and hard to understand. All of a sudden, the person who's supposed to lead the Israeli military appears and stutters. And from this stammering, you can't even begin to imagine. In the entire history of the human race, a mere stumble has never been turned into such a national scandal. Eshkol's radio speech was simply traumatic. In retrospect, one could probably say that the public overreacted. But at the time, when you didn't know what is going to happen, and the whole world is applauding Nasser, at a time when we lost our self-confidence, and the worst doubts were voiced, 
the impression it created was of doubt and fear. Colonel Lior writes, It was a horrible broadcast. With his stuttering, he conveyed more insecurity and confusion. I heard that soldiers at the front burst out crying. But there is more drama to come that fateful evening. From the disaster of his speech, Eshkol hurries to meet the army generals and explain why the government has again postponed the decision to go to war. Lior calls it the Night of the Generals. There wasn't a general's rebellion. There was a meeting. He stuttered indeed, and we heard it on our car radios on the way to the meeting. We knew Eshkol, it wasn't a big deal. But there was a lot of harsh talk. We need to remember that we are a reserve army. We can't wait for weeks for the Egyptians. The army was never built for that. The army needs to be mobilized and act fast. Today, we sawed off with our own hand the deterrence power of the Israeli army. We sawed our main weapon, the fear from us. The problem is not the Straits of Tehran. The problem is the existence of the State of Israel. Egypt, with the help of the USSR, is creating an army whose sole goal is to annihilate us. It is also obvious that our army is ready, but no one is activating it. Our problem is that Nasser challenged us in front of the whole world. He's showing off, and we need to end it. Their words hurt Eshkol a lot. As for the rest of us, we talked about practical matters. We told him, the risk you're taking by postponing the decision to go to war is that the war will take place here on our soil. It gives the Egyptians more time to organize better, to plan better. It gives all the advantage to them. It is Eshkol's turn to answer. He speaks to the generals with great emotion. Deterrence does not mean that you always have to act. How long will we live by our swords? You asked for a hundred planes, you got them. You asked for tanks, you got them. But you did not get them, so one day we can say, now we can destroy the Egyptian army. It was a quiet putsch by the general staff. How did he dare? The huge and holy army says that there is no choice but to go to war, and this stuttering Eshkol wants to tell the army what is good and needs to be done, and if a war is necessary or not? He did not stand a chance. of a war with Israel generates great excitement and support in the Arab world. A victory will undo the humiliation of Israel's very existence. Kuwait pledges its army to the United Command, 
along with Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Even a bitter opponent of Nasser, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, joins the cause. Will Saudi Arabia go to war against Israel? We are ready to go to the furthest extremity, war. Could I ask His Majesty what sequence of events he would like to see now in the Middle East? The first thing is the extermination of Israel. Jordan is not yet part of the Arab coalition, but this changes on May 30th, when King Hussein flies to Cairo to sign a defense pact with Nasser. Although the two men have not spoken in years, Hussein feels he has no choice but to join Nasser's war plan. He must protect his image as a nationalist Arab leader and protect his country in case of war. King Hussein felt that to defend the West Bank, he needed Arab support. That Arab support wouldn't be forthcoming unless he mended his fences with Nasser, because that would alleviate the pressures, that would stop the propaganda against him. Just a few days earlier, Hussein told Western diplomats that Nasser's closing of the Straits of Tehran was insane, that it would end badly for the Arabs, that they're not ready to fight Israel. But now Hussein is a full-fledged member of the United Arab Command. Control of the Jordanian army is signed over to the Egyptian military. This level of enthusiasm King Hussein showed surprised Nasser. And he never forgot this for the rest of his life. This alliance means that Israel will need to protect its border with Jordan. Although Jordan is not a major military power, its Arab legion fights well. More importantly, Jordan's alliances with Iraq and Saudi Arabia can bring more men and tanks into the war against Israel. In just two weeks, Nasser has ejected the UN forces from the Sinai, blocked the Straits of Tehran, and given new life to the dream of eliminating Israel. The entire Arab world is behind him. People were absolutely convinced that with King Hussein and Abdul Nasser, with Syria and Iraq, there was going to be a war and they were going to win. I mean, without really doing anything, but they were going to win somehow. It was going to happen. And there was this hysteria almost in the air, a hysteria of excitement and expectation. On June 1st, four days before the war, Eshkol breaks down and finally agrees. He will give up the defense portfolio. Moshe Dayan becomes the new Minister of Defense. Dayan had incredible personal charisma. He was able to hypnotize the public. Even if one day he said one thing and the next day the opposite. A big part of his success as Minister of Defense was the fact that he projected a sense of confidence to the army and the nation. People felt safe with him. One thing about the significance of this appointment is immediately clear. It's an outright victory for all those in Israel who favor the taking of a much tougher line against Egypt. 
Now out of the public eye, Eshkol is still looking for a way to avoid war. He sends Meir Amit of the Israeli Intelligence Agency to see the head of the CIA in Washington. Eshkol tries once again to see if the U.S. Navy will in fact force open the Straits of Tehran. I asked the director of the CIA what is the United States planning to do. He told me we are not going to do anything. None of the naval powers wants to get involved in this thing, except Denmark, which is debating it. With diplomatic options exhausted, the focus is now on the new Minister of Defense. Moshe Dayan has become the public face of Israel, and journalists ask about Israel's chances in a war against the Arab forces. Well, they have plenty of tanks and troops and everything, too much, too many, and uh, we have much less than they have. Much depends, of course, uh, where is uh, the battle. The next day, June 4th, Eshkol convenes a critical cabinet meeting, but Diane takes charge. We cannot lose the initiative. The situation gets militarily more complex. It does not matter who will shoot the first shot. We have to act, and act as quickly as possible. The cabinet votes. Twelve ministers are for a preemptive strike. Only two are against. Diane writes the official text of the decision. It reads, It is therefore decided to launch a military strike aimed at liberating Israel from encirclement and to prevent an impending assault by the United Arab Command. Yitzhak Rabin, recovered from his collapse, drills his army and air force relentlessly. On the eve of war, he says, the Israeli defense forces are wound up like a mighty spring. On the last night of peace, Eshkol writes to the two superpowers. In a note to Soviet Premier Kosygin, he pleads for Russia not to intervene on the side of the Arabs. In his other note, he calls President Johnson the greatest friend of Israel and asks him to keep the Soviets in check. Colonel Lior writes, I am scared. I'm not sure Israel can withstand the combined power of the Arab armies if our preemptive strike fails. That morning, on June 5th, I was at home having breakfast. The attack came at exactly 10 to 8. I heard it from my house. The Israeli attack has in fact been planned, even rehearsed, for eight years. Before I fly, I leave all my feelings behind. 
who I am, my feelings about my loved ones, all of that becomes irrelevant. I focus only on the mission. Almost the entire Israeli Air Force takes off. The attack is timed to catch the Egyptians at breakfast. It's an all-out assault, aimed at hitting every airbase in Egypt simultaneously. The planes fly low, avoiding Egyptian radar. At each airfield, there is an overall plan. First, disable the runways to prevent escape. Then, take out individual planes. We climbed, then dived. The Cairo West airfield was burning in front of me. It was cool to see the airfield burning. My target was in front of me. Now to find my Tupolev bombers. Each is the size of a Boeing 707 and intended to bomb Tel Aviv. It was a great feeling to destroy them. The Israelis achieve total surprise. Egypt's Field Marshal Amer is touring the Sinai to prepare for the coming war, unaware that it has already started. It was a strange feeling to see the Israeli planes over us. My first impression of the war was when I saw the Israeli planes above me, while I was in the Field Army Command headquarters. Not a single warning siren sounded before their arrival. I can't say I wasn't expecting what happened, but I didn't imagine it was going to be that bad. Not that bad. In just three hours, the Egyptian Air Force is destroyed. 280 modern jet fighters and bombers lost. It takes only two more hours to destroy the Syrian Air Force and minutes to annihilate the Jordanians. Within the first hours of the war, Israel has destroyed the air power of its enemy and is now able to mount its ground offensive without fear of an Arab air attack. I gave the coded order, red sheet. It meant that the tanks should raise antennas and begin to move. I heard the order cascading through the communication networks of all the command centers, and we pressed forward. Israel drives an armored wedge into Egyptian defenses along the three roads leading into the Sinai Desert, and begins to engage the main body of the Egyptian army. Israeli reservist Yehoshua Bar Dayan sees action in the Sinai, and he keeps a diary. Now that it's actually happening, there is no fear, only excitement. It seems like chaos. Dozens of tanks and armored trucks are on the move. We're suffocating in the dust. The Egyptian high command is in a state of shock. Israel's air attack has been a catastrophe. 
Without air cover, Egyptian troops at the front begin to panic. Our officers didn't even have time to order us to dig in. Everything happened so fast. Suddenly we saw our soldiers withdrawing. Nobody told us what was happening. So we withdrew too. With both air and ground wars going badly, the Egyptian military's command and communication networks begin to crack. Commanders at headquarters don't know what's happening in the field. But these military disasters are kept from the Egyptian public. Jubilant crowds gather to listen as Radio Cairo announces victories. Each fictitious downed Israeli jet elicits cheers. All we were allowed to broadcast were the announcements of the general command. The command was telling of great victories. We have downed dozens of aircraft. Our forces are advancing in the Sinai, and commandos are already in Israeli territory. It gave us the impression we were achieving a great victory. In Damascus, the Syrian Broadcasting Service is also reporting imaginary conquests. The President of the Republic came to the TV station to make a speech to the nation. He encouraged the people, telling them that the war had started and that tomorrow we would have lunch in Tel Aviv. Israel follows its own plan of disinformation. The public has not been told of the total victory of the Israeli air attack. Israelis learn about the war when air raid sirens signal them to go into shelters. Moshe Dayan, as defense minister, gave an order. He ordered total radio silence on the first day of the war. Not one announcement on what the IDF was doing, or its victories. All the Israeli public hears is a general statement that the war has begun. The reason for that was the fear of an immediate international intervention that would attempt to impose a ceasefire. The Soviets soon learn about the war and the destruction of the Egyptian Air Force. At the Kremlin, the Politburo goes into emergency session. The Politburo was trying to determine its position. Shall we get involved militarily or in some other way? The Israeli army was advancing inside Egypt. The whole situation was getting out of control. We had to decide what to do. The Politburo opts for a bold stance. 
it rushes reinforcements to the Egyptian army and orders 41 MiG jet fighters to fly to a staging ground in Armenia. While preparing for war, the Soviets also activate the hotline and contact the White House directly. For this task, the Kremlin summons its foremost English translator, Viktor Sukhodrev. I was led into a room where I saw not a telephone, but an ordinary teletype machine. And they had rolls of paper, a typewriter-style keyboard. That was it. Then, Premier Kosygin walks in. Kosygin said, tell the White House that Chairman Kosygin is here at the apparatus and wants to talk to President Johnson. About 7.15, the telephone rang. It was the duty officer in the war room. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, Prime Minister Kosygin's on the hotline. He wishes to speak to the president. So the president came on the line. He said, in effect, God damn it, Bob, what are you calling me for at this time in the morning? I said, Mr. President, Prime Minister Kosygin's on the hotline. Uh, how do you wish to respond? Kosygin started dictating. The Israelis were advancing to Egyptian territory and it was therefore up to Israel's ally and supporter, the United States, to stop the aggression. President Johnson doesn't want the Soviets to take unilateral military action, nor does he want to become entangled in Israel's war. Johnson writes back immediately. He promises Kosygin to work together with the Soviets in the United Nations and do everything possible to stop the war before it escalates. Radio Cairo's false news about Egyptian military successes has reached Arab Jerusalem, where it has an electrifying effect. What's the radio saying about what's happened? 23 airmen for, the, for Israel. 23? 23, now. Airplanes? Yes, airplanes. What, shut down? Yes. By this time, I had left the newspaper and run over to the radio station just to see what was going on. Because all they were doing was broadcasting military music and shouting slogans. And I remember saying to them, they're going to hit this place. And the head of the station saying, because he had some military experience, the head of the station. We were probably the only two people with military experience. He had served in the Jordan Army, I had served in the American Army. Nobody else. That was the other amazing thing for me. Everybody's clamoring war for war, all the young men, and none of them knew how to fire a rifle. And I was cautioned, don't talk that way. You're suggesting that the united might of the Arabs are not going to overwhelm Israel. They're going to come in here. How can you even think that way? The truth is that on the first day, our morale was very high because all the information we got was that the Arabs were victorious. Israel jammed our military communications, so we were getting all our information from the radio. And the Egyptian radio Cairo was giving wrong information. In Amman, Jordan's King Hussein receives a message from Israel. We appeal to King Hussein and to other neighbors to stay their hands 
and Israel will do likewise. But King Hussein can do little. He has signed a mutual defense treaty with his Arab neighbors, and his army is now under the control of an Egyptian, General Riyadh. We were fighting the war on the basis that it was an Arab joint effort. This is why the Egyptian general's views prevailed. The Arab war plan calls for the Egyptian and Jordanian armies to cut Israel in half. But neither King Hussein nor General Riyadh have any real information about the progress of the war. Just public lies from Radio Cairo and private lies from the very top. Nasser calls the king and tells him that his planes are attacking Israel. He urges Hussein to seize as much territory as possible before a UN ceasefire. Minutes after this phone call, Jordanian guns and mortars start to shell the Israeli half of Jerusalem. This is the first attack on Israeli territory. They started bringing in hundreds of wounded by uh, ambulance and also by helicopter. There's a helicopter landing field over there. Only three hours into the war with Egypt, the war has now expanded to include Jerusalem. The future of the holy city, sacred to Muslims, Christians, and Jews, will be decided by force of arms in a battle that will resonate for generations. for Jerusalem begins where the 1948 war left off. For close to 20 years, Jerusalem has been a city divided between Jordan and Israel. In his home, Jordanian soldier Badi Awad keeps a prize painting. It depicts how his unit defeated the Israelis in 1948 and captured the Jewish quarter. 19 years later, in 1967, he's back. This time, to fight for the demilitarized UN compound. I got a direct order to occupy the UN headquarters south of Jerusalem. I was to secure it from an Israeli incursion. In the war room, the nerve center of Israel's military command, one man, General Moshe Dayan, defense minister for only four days, is making all the critical decisions. His prime concern is to avoid a war on multiple fronts, a potential disaster for the outnumbered Israeli forces. But Jerusalem is a special case. He decides he cannot put the city at risk. He authorizes the Israeli Central Command to engage in the battle for the UN headquarters. One thing was clear to me. 
If I could quickly counterattack, I would be successful. While Colonel Dar's tanks attack the high ground overlooking the headquarters, one platoon forces its way into the compound. I was giving my orders from the heart of the battle. I was facing the enemy with my soldiers. We were positioned with two battalions forward and one to the rear in the compound. By late afternoon, a wounded Ashurdar captures the UN headquarters. Now that a ground war with Jordan has begun, the military must control the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. In the war of 1948, that road, which runs through the Latrun Valley, was occupied by the Jordanian Legion. General Moshe Yotvat is assigned to secure the road. Yotvat is no stranger to this place. He fought here twice in 1948. And twice, the Israelis were unable to dislodge the valley's Jordanian defenders. I was wounded in the battle. The platoon commander was wounded. Ariel Sharon was wounded. Actually, everyone who came out alive was wounded. The rest did not come out alive. Now, Moshe Yotvat has another chance. He starts shelling the Jordanians. But the Jordanian legion has withdrawn into the West Bank. Yotvat pursues them. military elite is watching disaster unfold. They want to defend and hold Jerusalem as they have done in the past. But their troops are now under the command of an Egyptian general, and he is following orders from Cairo to send Jordan's army away from Jerusalem. They were shouting and screaming at each other, and they nearly fought because the Jordanians felt this was a battle of destiny for them. This was the, this, it meant the future of the West Bank and in particular, Jerusalem. On the second day of the war, with the Sinai campaign going well, Moshe Dayan pulls out his paratroopers from the Egyptian front and sends them to fight in the battle for Jerusalem. Israelis are haunted by the loss of the Jewish quarter in the old city just 19 years earlier in the 48 war. The quarter was destroyed, its synagogues defiled, and access to the Wailing Wall lost. Jews were exiled from a city where they had lived since the reign of King David 3,000 years before. To many Israelis, this was a national disaster. One of the paratroopers sent from the Sinai to fight in Jerusalem is Hanan Porat. 
For me, and not only for me, I finally understood something. The war was changing direction. It was no longer a war for survival, a defensive war against jihad, but a war which, even if we didn't express it this way, had become a war of redemption. I remember how we went up to Jerusalem in these dusty buses, the buses roaring with the song Jerusalem of Gold. The guys are singing about how the water holes have dried up, how nobody comes anymore to visit the town square. I mean, who thought about those things back then? The song, Jerusalem of Gold, was written just before the war. It's an unlikely anthem for the soldiers, most of them secular Jews who have always regarded Tel Aviv as their center. But the war is changing Israel. The largely secular nation is getting a heady dose of religion, and the battle for Jerusalem is starting to feel like another holy war. That night, the Israelis begin a determined ground offensive. The soldiers are paratroopers, like Private Yaki Hetz, fighting for the ridge overlooking the old city. I felt there was no earth underneath me, like I'm walking through water. I shoot just to get my confidence back. Ghazi Rubaya commands a company of the Jordanian army assigned to protect the ridge. I had two options. Either my soldiers get killed, or I find a way out of here. What shall I do? The Jews are coming from all sides. The spirit of my soldiers is at its lowest. The Jordanian resistance is broken after five hours of fierce fighting. 105 Jordanians and 35 Israelis die, 18 of them from Yaki Hetz's platoon. I was in shock. I tried to understand what happened. For me, it was a war of survival. I never took part in any of the celebrations. Even a year later, I couldn't listen to the music that celebrated the victory. I refused to listen to Jerusalem of gold. I had to turn the radio off. I was in despair. This war was a terrible blow. Those who listen to my story of the war may not realize the scope of the tragedy. The fierceness of the battle, the fear, the hunger, the pain, the responsibility. Defeat is bitter. Its psychological effects stayed with us for a very long time.
With the defeat of the Jordanians who were defending the approaches to the city, the Israelis prepare to move in. Abdullah Schleifer is there to witness the beginning of the fall of the old city. I saw one airplane that swept low, clearing the Dome of the Rock, and then as it moved upward, it dropped the bombs that wiped out the last Jordanian military positions that were defending the approach to the old city. By morning, most of the Jordanian defenders in Old Jerusalem are gone. On the third day, about six or seven hundred people came to us in the Aqsa Mosque, asking us to withdraw. I don't blame them. They saw tanks in the streets, and they were under the influence of Israel's psychological warfare. A few stayed on the walls to fight. A few militiamen and a few Jordanian soldiers who decided they were going to stay and die here. They stayed on the walls, and there was even a unit, a sergeant and two of his men, who were with the Jordanian army as it left the city. And by the time it got to the other side of the valley, they looked back, the sun was rising, and they saw the sun sparkling on the dome. And they were so moved by this sight, usually when people desert, they desert to go away from war. These men deserted to come back and fight. We arrived here late in the morning. We came down from Augusta Victoria through the Kadron Valley and climbed towards the Lion's Gate. We felt that we were making history, that we were writing a new chapter in the Bible. I heard tremendous shouts, and I realized that the Israelis had entered the city. You know, tremendous shouts of victory and exaltation and firing. You could see Israeli troops fanning out in the Haram Shadiv, and you could see the prisoners were being taken, and they were obviously notables of the city, because this Haram was the last command post for the governor, for what there was of a, of a civilian command. From the Temple Mount, the soldiers find a small gate that leads to the Wailing Wall. Even young, secular Israelis get caught up in the religious frenzy. Near me, I can see a kibbutz member from a left-wing kibbutz, and he is asking me, Hanan, what prayer do you say here? I tell him, pray. But I do not know how to pray, he answers. Say Shmai Israel, And he tells me, I do not know how to say it. I told him, repeat after me. And he repeated, shouting, Shema, listen, our God of Israel. Believe me, I do not know if I ever heard such a prayer in my life. I'm standing there with my family holding my American passport. And I'm saying, I'm an American, I'm an American. And they're shouting, the roof, the roof, in English. They want to get out of the roof, because there's still some sniping. And then, it's in every Israeli history book, they come up to hang the flag.
Israeli soldiers capture the euphoric moment on home movie cameras. The Israelis have taken the old city of Jerusalem. They have, in their view, liberated one of Judaism's holiest sites, the remains of the Second Temple. But at the same time, they have occupied one of the Muslim world's holiest places, the Haram al-Sharif, or Noble Sanctuary. This tragic intersection of religious geography will stoke the fires of conflict for generations to come. And it will be a deep and humiliating setback for Jordan's king. King Hussein has always perceived himself as a Hashemite leader. He's a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. And the protection of the Jerusalem Muslim shrines was the responsibility of the Hashemites. And history would register that they were lost during his time. If we are going to live, we will live with honor. If we don't make it, we will die with honor. For our nation, for our rights, and for all times. The conquering generals of the Israeli army, Moshe Dayan, Uzi Narkis, and Yitzhak Rabin, proudly enter the city they've captured. They are careful to record the moment. We advanced about 10 meters past the gate when Dayan stopped the group and said, Ilan, please go forward and take a picture of me entering the old city. These were his exact words. It is to be a purely military triumph. Israeli Prime Minister Levi Eshkol is absent. He has been told it's too dangerous for him to come. There's only room for Israel's heroes of the moment, the military. By the second day of the war, the Israeli army in the West Bank is fighting so well and moving so fast that it has outrun civilian control. Even the army high command is leaving critical decisions to local commanders. General Moshe Yotvat moves into the West Bank and pushes through to the Jordan Valley. I was just taking advantage of opportunities as they came. And this is how it happened in every place we took on the West Bank. It just rolled from one phase to the next. There was no plan. Yes, there were operation plans from before, but there was no overall plan to occupy the West Bank, period. In the Sinai, the Israelis are also doing better than they expected. General Ariel Sharon surprises the Egyptians when he crosses sand dunes previously considered impassable. He orders his artillery to make the earth shake. For the Arab armies, the war has been one defeat after another. If their leaders are to survive this calamity, they must shift the blame somewhere else. 
Egyptian President Gamal Nasser gets on the phone with Jordan's King Hussein. Together, they come up with an explanation for their defeats. They accuse the U.S. and Britain of fighting on Israel's side. But Israeli intelligence has taped the call. diplomat Richard Parker hears the accusation over the radio, he calls Nasser's deputy. I called up and said, what the hell is this? There aren't any American aircraft within, 30, within 300 miles of Egypt. He said, for your information, they could not possibly have done what they did without help, and that help had to come from you or the British, and we think it was you. The accusation about U.S. and British involvement ricochets around the Arab world and feeds a growing resentment against the West. From the outset, President Johnson has tried to stop the fighting. He also wants a post-war policy that would bring a more lasting peace. But first, he has to get the U.N. Security Council on board. A normal United Nations Security Council resolution in a situation like this after a war or an attack would be ceasefire and withdrawal of forces to their pre-war boundaries. The Soviets want a ceasefire and a withdrawal. But Johnson accepts Israel's argument that they should not withdraw and that the captured territories be exchanged for peace. In the corridors of the UN, intense negotiations take place. The Soviet Union is so alarmed at the speed of Arab losses that it's ready to accept a quick agreement and avoid the complete destruction of the Arab armies. The Soviets, therefore, agree to a ceasefire with no withdrawal. Even though Israel is now in possession of large swaths of Arab land. To Johnson's dismay, Egypt and Syria refuse to accept the proposal. But this principle of exchanging land for peace becomes the American policy in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Nobody sat down and said the position of the United States for the next 40 years will be no Israeli withdrawal until there's peace. We're still, 40 years later, dealing with the consequences of that decision. Egyptian army, though battered, remains a formidable fighting force. Nine of its 14 divisions have not yet seen combat and could be used to block the Israeli drive to the Suez Canal. Amer, however, has no fight left in him. He wants to withdraw. But when his generals submit a plan that will take three days to implement, he panics and orders the army to get out of the Sinai immediately. The withdrawal was not planned. A planned withdrawal means an orderly retreat to specific positions. 
The withdrawal orders were issued without details, and the local commanders were left alone to execute them. It resulted in a lot of confusion on the Sinai front. The Egyptian army took a month to move into the Sinai, and now they are trying to escape in a day. Amer's withdrawal order is intercepted by the Israelis, and they set a trap. There are 100,000 Egyptian soldiers and hundreds of tanks to be captured or destroyed. Instead of the original plan of attack, we decided to encircle the Egyptian army. We knew they had a withdrawal order, and so they would have to find a way to break out of this encirclement. Rather than attack them, we were waiting for them to come to us. Fatih Abu El-Rish has been retreating on foot for over 24 hours. We were walking in groups of three or four. We knew the roads because we had spent three years in this area. As we walked, we looked in broken down cars for food or water. Everyone was looking to the sky. We were afraid that there would be an airplane coming to attack us. No one was thinking about anyone else, only about himself. Yehoshua Bardayan writes in his diary. I am driving over bodies. There are human limbs, one after another. I'm driving over the face of an Egyptian soldier. His nose is sticking up and his eyes are open. I am searching for a word that will describe the sight. It is the total destruction of the Egyptian army. Tens of thousands of Egyptians are taken prisoner. An Israeli soldier near the airport of El Arish captures this on film. As the numbers become overwhelming, the Israelis decide to keep only officers and specialists and let the others go. There was chaos until we got to the banks of the Suez. The Israelis told us, go back home. They captured a huge amount of soldiers and were detaining about 20,000 people, but then they let them go. Tens of thousands of Egyptian soldiers are going home with tales of defeat and destruction. There will be no more cheering crowds, no easy lies about victories. By late afternoon, Nasser meets with his senior officers, including Field Marshal Amer. 
Distraught, the officers leave the two men alone. Nasser comes out with an ashen face and says, everything is over. We're agreeing to a ceasefire. He was very sad. He reiterated what he said to me. If I knew the army was incapable of military confrontation, I would have avoided it. I am a chess player. I can play politics. I didn't have to go to war. With his army destroyed, Nasser decides to face his nation. He justifies his road to war and admits that the Egyptian army has suffered a terrible defeat. But he avoids responsibility and blames the US and Britain for helping Israel. He then stuns his countrymen and the Arab world by resigning as president. I remember the cameraman was crying. The chief cameraman had to take over for him in order to continue the broadcast. Nasser has barely finished his speech when thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of Egyptians, many organized by his political party, fill the streets, crying, shouting, begging their leader to stay. We heard it on the radio. We wanted to go to Cairo and to tell him, no, don't resign. He had to stay. It's like your son has done something wrong and is trying to avoid responsibility. You have to deal with the matter and correct your mistake. Not only the Egyptians took to the street, but all Arabs everywhere. He received calls from other presidents asking him to stay. Hours later, Radio Cairo announces that Nasser will not resist the voice of the people. He says that he will remain in office until the traces of Israel's aggression are eradicated. In all the countries in the world that went through similar experiences, the governments fell. But not the Arab regimes. That's the situation I had to face, as well as millions of other citizens. Here we were, left in the middle of a path, a deserted, dry path. Not a cloud in the sky, no promise of rain. We were left with the ruins of our dreams. In the first four days of war, Israel defeats Egypt and Jordan. Moshe Dayan did not want the army to reach the Suez Canal, but now Israelis are cooling in its waters. 
Diane had been against the occupation of the old city of Jerusalem. Who needs this Vatican, he said. But now, Israel controls all of Jerusalem. Diane was reluctant to respond to Syrian shelling in the north because of the possibility of involving Syria's powerful ally, the Soviet Union. But on the fifth day of war, Diane changes his mind and orders an attack on Syria. Diane once told me that Israel is like a small mouse. There's a big ocean in which all the superpowers swim. They're the big fish, whales, dolphins. And Israel is like a small mouse. It runs quickly out of its hole to grab something and runs quickly back to the hole. Israel attacks all along the Syrian border. Diane's goal is to control the strategic Golan Heights and silence Syrian guns once and for all. His action brings the world to the brink of global war. That evening, the hotline in the White House comes to life. Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin sends a stern warning. Kosygin, in a sense, said to the president, if you want war, you're going to get war. He didn't actually use those words. He said, in effect, if you don't stop this action, that is to say, if you don't stop Israel attacking Syria, we will have to respond and we will consider, I think his words were, unilateral military action. The situation was very serious on a global scale. No one knew what turn events might take. You know, Middle East conflict has always been like a powder keg. There might have been an explosion with grave consequences for the whole world. The Soviets move to back up their threat. They order Air Force General Vasily Reshetnikov to repaint his planes with Egyptian Air Force markings and prepare for action. I was told to get my air squadrons ready, to equip the airplanes with bombs, and to be ready to strike military and communications targets in Israel. Less than 10 miles from the Israeli shores, the Soviet fleet is assembling a force to storm the Israeli port of Haifa. Captain Yuri Kripunkov is asked to find volunteers to go ashore for battle. I lined up my boys on the deck and said, lads, it seems like we're going to take part in a very serious action. Those who are not ready to risk their lives should step ahead. Only one stepped ahead. As the news of Soviet military preparations streams into the Situation Room in Washington, the U.S. makes military preparations of its own. It is the most dangerous moment of the Cold War since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We feared we would have to introduce U.S. military force to support Israel defending itself against a combination of uh, Syria and the Soviet Union. 
the Sixth Fleet was then uh, steaming on a training exercise in the Mediterranean toward Gibraltar. Uh, we turned it around and, and sent it back toward Israel, not, not to support an Israel attack on Syria, but to be prepared to defend Israel against a potential Soviet uh, attack. Very, very dangerous. In the United Nations, Syria presses for an immediate ceasefire, but Israel resists. This buys Diane enough time to finish what he's started. In the next few hours, the Syrian army is decimated. The Israelis push to within 40 miles of Syria's capital, Damascus, when Diane calls a halt and Israel agrees to a ceasefire. I remember taking in my car a soldier who was walking back home from the front. He was crying. I asked him, why are you crying? And he said, I would have preferred to have both my legs amputated than to return home in such defeat. After only six days, the war is over. Israelis feared the worst, and now they are filled with relief. The political geography of the region has dramatically changed. Israel now controls three and a half times as much land as it had six days ago. Prime Minister Eshkol who didn't want the war, governs one and a half million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. But it is Jerusalem that is both the biggest prize and the thorniest issue. In old Jerusalem, the Israelis feel they've liberated their ancient capital and they are quick to make their presence known. The war ends at 6 p.m. That same night, the Israeli army begins to alter the city. I start hearing noise coming up from the Magadam quarter. And I see there are um, bulldozers. And they're starting to destroy houses. And in the morning, I get a better look. Half the quarter is destroyed. For generations, Jews who wanted to pray at the Wailing Wall had to do so in a narrow alley. But now, Diane wants to remake this quarter into an open plaza that can hold thousands. The Wailing Wall is to be transformed from a religious site into a national symbol. When I saw this destruction, there was a part of me that felt tremendous dread, that like a whole new problem was gonna be created, a whole new problem. But for the moment, Israelis are triumphant. Thousands go to Jerusalem to celebrate and give thanks. They feel they have been saved from destruction. 
Yet many want more than a short-term victory. What would you like to see happen now? Would you like to see all the land that's been gained kept by Israel? No, I would like to see peace. Oh, I think there may be a chance for peace now with the Arabs, yes, of course. We were in a state of shock those first few days. For the first time, people could visit Jerusalem and the territories. It was as if all politicians, from the right and left, and all the people, had taken a large dose of LSD and we were flying. While the Israelis are celebrating, the Palestinians are devastated. The rest of Palestine has fallen into Israeli hands. I decided to cross the River Jordan. I had relatives in Nablus and Jerusalem and Ramallah. The people were not only shocked, it, it was more than shock. People were, as I told you, influenced, enticed by the propaganda war to feel that victory was, was at hand. To be defeated in such a humiliating way was something beyond anybody's imagination. Almost immediately, the Israeli government begins to plan for peace. Israel offers to give back Sinai and the Golan in exchange for full peace with Egypt and Syria. It is willing to negotiate over the West Bank, but insists on keeping all of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Diane and Eshkol stated that they were willing to give a lot back for peace, and Diane said its famous line, that he's waiting for a telephone call from the Arabs. And the Arabs, instead of calling Diane, went to Khartoum. One month after the war, Arab leaders gathered for a meeting in Khartoum, Sudan, to deal with the aftermath of the war. In spite of his horrendous defeat, Nasser is still the undisputed leader of the Arab world. He rejects the land for peace concept promoted by the Soviets and the Americans as being tantamount to a surrender. Instead, the conference decides on the three no's, no recognition of Israel, no peace, and no negotiations. And all Arab states are to prepare for military action. After the war, Egypt and Jordan do sign peace agreements with Israel. The Palestinians and Israelis are still in painful negotiations. The Arab League has accepted the principle of land for peace. But 40 years later, the war is still with us. Its results are embodied in every aspect of the bloody Middle East conflict. Both the victors and the vanquished are still searching for its meaning. We are a foreign implant, and 
around us are hundreds of millions of others, and nothing will change that. It is not a solution to depart from here and give them the country. And if we don't leave here, this conflict will not end very soon. The Israeli horizon, you see, is only to the next battle. Because if they lose one battle, they're gone. We tried to understand why. We were deceived. They lied to us. The only objective of the Arabic regimes was to stay in power, nothing else. Our institutions were incapable of dealing with this catastrophe. Our governments showed only a short-term view, a lack of organization, corruption. What fell is the political government class in the Arab world. We thought we were strong, politically, militarily, economically, culturally, and even creatively. Suddenly, with the war of 1967, we found ourselves at the edge of a pit, the edge of a vacuum. Our institutions were incapable of dealing with this tragedy. So all right, Nasser made a mistake and Hussein made a mistake. So why do we have to fall into the trap of their mistake and to turn our lives into an ongoing hell? Forty years, forty years we have been living in an ongoing hell because of this accursed occupation. Forty years later, I'm convinced that the war was the right step. I'm very proud of the Six-Day War. I applaud its result. It changed the face of the Middle East, and I think the peace we achieved with Egypt and Jordan are the direct result of the Six-Day War. And there was a myth that the Arabs are not courageous, that they would not commit suicide that they wouldn't fight. But you must not be contemptuous about your opponent. And you must not forget that you have to make peace with your enemy. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.